This is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Medvedev, championship point, serves out wide. There it is! Game, set, championship one from Daniel Medvedev. The biggest title of the Russian's career. And he's done it the hard way. He's beaten the top three players. The first player at this tournament to beat the top three on their way to the title. There's an embrace by the two players at the net, but it's all about Daniel Medvedev unbeaten from start to finish. Back-to-back titles to end the year. Daniel Medvedev, your champion in London. Three sets against Dominic Team. 4-6, 7-6, 6-4. And without the 2020 season is over. The curtain has come down on the Tour Finals in London, and it's Daniel Medvedev who wins the final trophy of the year, unbeaten from start to finish. Gigi Salmon alongside Miles McLagan as we were Miles for the final. Another year another new winner at the Tour Finals. Yeah, and what a great event it's been, yes, and particularly the weekend, such a high level of tennis, a little mix of the old and the new, but just the, the, the tennis continues to astound me, the, the levels that these guys push themselves to, how resilient they are in the face of disappointment. We've seen topsy-turvy matches over this weekend, and they just wouldn't go away. What was the difference between the two in this final? What made the difference? Well, I wonder if Perhaps just a little bit of freshness. Um, Daniel Medvedev had a slightly smoother passage through the group stages. He had spent about two hours less on court before the final. Although, having said that, he finished much later the night before. But just, you know, Dominic Team, who's normally so strong on court, there was quite a lot of chat, and he did seem a little bit more stressed. But Medvedev, his ability to adapt. We saw Dominic Team come out with some interesting uh, tactics. He used the slice backhand a lot. In fact, I think he sliced about 70 to 75% of the time. And Medvedev, he was a little awkward at first, but he found a way around it. He started playing his own slice. He started rushing the net by then. We saw serve and volley. And it was him that sort of threw problems at Team, who, and it was the Austrian that was frustrated by the end. When we're talking about how tired players are, Daniel Medvedev is so hard to read because from the first ball, he looks exhausted. Yeah, he has that sort of look, sort of the mouth's open, and he kind of drags himself around the court. But what an athlete he is. He can just cover the ground. He, he never gives up, and he just seems to go and go. And I think it's, it's, uh, it'd be a very good poker player. It's like someone who says, you know, he thinks he hasn't got a good hand, and then he's still there. He turns him over, and he's got, you've got what? <laughs> I didn't see that coming. And so it's a, it's a double whammy. He's obviously put in an incredible amount of work but he he's very tough as well he digs in and, and mentally he's been so balanced throughout this event and he was so clever tactically he made changes when he need to make changes so he beats Nadal in the semi-final that's his first win over Nadal and we saw a big smile at the end of that he changed things up and he said afterwards look something was missing so I made a difference against Dominic Team. we started seeing the the serve volley for the first part of the the match he was sort of scared of the net he wasn't coming forward and then he couldn't stop coming forward he is willing <laughs> to make a change when he has to and that was a really interesting part because it's nice to see players take on tactics and then look to yeah. to counteract them and change their return positions and he did that he likes to return a long way back in the court Daniel Medvedev we saw that against Nadal Nadal's second point in the match serving volleys and by the end he was in and you know he missed maybe a few more returns but it was something he he needed to do and you know again today that the slices and, and by the end when he wanted to close it out I mean he was serving volleying he was serving volleying on second serves and his volleys actually got better it's still not completely uh, instinctive or natural for him but it, 
he sensed the situation as well. He knew that team wasn't comfortable and he continued to upset his rhythm and keep him off guard. Now, I know you've got to beat the best to be the best at this tournament because it's the top eight, but he is the first player at this tournament to beat the top three. I mean, he was unbeaten from start to finish, but he did it the hard way. He beat three best players in the world, the three ahead of him to win this trophy. And that, I think, sums up the level of tennis he's playing. He is definitely amongst the very best. And, and add to that list, Djokovic, Nadal and team, yep. Sasha Zverev as well, yep. who's a, a former champion here, who's a very tough player. He cruised through him, 6-3, 6-4. Didn't get past just about four games in, the, uh, in his group stages. So, um, you know, he'll take a, a huge amount of confidence from, from what he's done this week. And, of course, in the other players' eyes, they notice that as well. They think this guy's big time. He comes on court with a little bit more intimidation. They've seen how fit he is, how he's been able to last. We look back to that U.S. Open last year on the end of a huge run we thought he was exhausted he can't match came back from two sets that I've done play that, that, that's worth a few points and that's worth that, that intimidation that puts doubt into players mind and that's going to pay off for him but it's not just that he, he got more and more aggressive as his confidence grew throughout the event let's, let's not forget Nadal served for the match in the semi-finals yeah. he broke him to love turned that around and came back from there so he, it wasn't all plain sailing for the Russian. Dominic team on his way to the final back-to-back -back finals in London he beat Nadal in the group stage those two tie breaks and he came through 7-6 and from behind in the tie break against Djokovic in the semi-final and, and yes disappointment in London but so much for Dominic team to reflect on and be proud of in this year because he's achieved one of his lifetime goals he's a Grand Slam champion. Yeah, you only need those seven matches and he can write off the rest of the year. And it's been a great year. He's worked very, very hard. And it's a little surprising, perhaps, his first Masters 1000 title came in Indian Wells on the hard courts. And then the first Grand Slam in, in New York, a title again. He had to fight quite hard for a little topsy-turvy there against Sasha Zvera. But I think he's also shown himself in the rest of the tour that he belongs at the very, very top of the game. He'll be pushing for, for number one because his game works across all surfaces yep. perhaps grass a little work to be done i mean of course he can w win matches there but that's a short period of the season uh so you know he's a threat again on the clay on the hard right throughout and in the past he's played so many matches so many tournaments i think he'll cut that back a little bit he'll start to be a little more selective when he plays but all that work he's done in the past will stand him in very good stead i'm gonna put you on the spot now is Nadal ever going to win the Tour Finals? Moves to Turin from 2021. Is he going to claim that trophy that's missing from the cabinet? I think if I, if I had to guess, because I'm basically betting against Nadal or the field, I'm going to take the field. Yep. So the odds would say not. But, you know, of course he's got as good a shot as any because you, you've got to make it, which you sort of bank on him to do. And let's see what surface there is in, in Turin. This surface here in London has traditionally been fairly quick. Dominic Team described it this week as fast. I wouldn't go that far. But the bounce hasn't been particularly high, and that's what harms Nadal. He wants to get his ball exploding up off the surface. You know, we saw that match with Nadal as tough with Nadal against Medvedev. As tough as it was, it doesn't push Medvedev you know, up and back and it's easier for him to take it. Of course, he's one of the greatest competitors sports ever seen, so he finds a way to battle. But if you go to Turin and the surface is a little harder, a little more bouncy, a little gritty, we've seen that on, on, on some of those intercourse, he's in the mix again. 50th anniversary of the event 
It was a shame there couldn't be crowds there, but we understand the reasons why and the fact that we had an event at all. The fact that we've had the season that we've had at all is, is a credit to tennis and everybody involved. And in London, we had the best eight and we had the mix. We had the Nadal and Djokovic. And then we had those who've been there and experienced it before and are making a habit of turning up at the Tour Finals. Medvedev, that was his second appearance, having not won a match last year. And then we have Diego Schwartzman. Will he be back again? Who knows, but he ends as a top 10 player. And Andre Rublev, who you feel will be back at the Tour Finals for many years to come. So you had a real mix that gathered together in London. And, and it was great to see. And, yeah. and, and that's what we saw in, the, in that semi-finals as well with, with uh, Medvedev in particular showing up to play. Schwartzman, I wouldn't a lot. I mean, what a, what a year he's had, and, and what a respected professional! Uh, a a semi final in the French Open, and, and uh, a win against Nadal, a final in Rome. Boy, what a, what a player he is! But I think it's going to be tough for him again because you'd imagine a few of the, the spots are are kind of locked up. I mean, you'd you'd imagine probably four, perhaps five are are, are locked in. I mean, we're going to I'm going to give a spot to, <laughs> to Djokovic, um, Nadal again, team. So you know you're fighting. For, for three or four spots. So even for Rublev, who played very, very well, he had a match point against uh, Sitsipas, it was so a little disappointment there. But it's going to be tough for him again. And of course, we hope we get a full, full season next year, which might make a little yep. bit of difference. But we've still got guys lingering around. Stan Wawrinka's playing some good tennis. Denis Shapovalov wasn't too far out of it. He was here watching this week, getting a little flavor for it. I'm sure he'll he'll want to be back and, and, and part of the action. So, um, you know, Berrettini again was here before. He'll want to get back and play in, uh, in Turin. Now, coming into this tournament, I think as far as the singles goes, Novak Djokovic is quite a heavy favourite. I know both of us had tipped Djokovic yep. to win this title. And when it came to the doubles, it was a coin toss because there were very few points as they entered, separating the first pair in the world to the eighth qualified team. And the matches through the group stages, pretty much right through, barring a couple to the final, were so close. Yeah, there were plenty of champions tie breaks and, and, and really, really tight four battles. Of course, the, the, the race for, for number one was on, yeah, so yeah. things to play for there. And then we discovered during during the event how all half these partnerships were splitting up and, and going separate ways. It's like dominoes, isn't it? One <laughs> says, right, I'm leaving you, I'm going with you. And then that one says, well, I haven't got a partner. And this one says, well, I've been left and I've been... And suddenly, sort of all over the place, all these pairings are playing their final match, their final tournament yeah, together. Yeah, and you suddenly realise that, that they're playing against their part next year's partner, so you better be, better be nice and polite to him. So yeah, it was uh, it was a year of a lot of movement because I think some of these teams haven't been together that long. Of course, this is probably the first time for a long time that we haven't had the Bryans in the mix. Yeah. The, the, the the French pairing weren't there. Going back a little bit, we, there was the likes of Knowles and Nestor and those sort of guys. Murray and Suarez were together a few years. They're going to go back together now. So less established partnerships, but um, I know it's, it's two of your favourites, the Germans, they'll stick together. Yep, yep, they've definitely got the Olympics <laughs> in mind. They've been talking about that a lot. Huge disappointment for Raji Ram and Joe yeah. Salisbury because not only were they were they points away from booking their place in the final, they were also points away from being year-end number one doubles team. Yeah, tough tough for them. They had a match point to, to get through and um, to seal that number one in the race, which is which is a special thing. You never know if you're going to get that again because it's accumulation of, of, of 
of a year's work. So they, they came right to the edge. They weren't able to, to get into that final. Went down to Meltzer and Vassen after being right up in the tiebreak as well. But, you know, players, it's a disappointment. But I think, you know, after a week or two weeks, whatever it is, the dust settles, you realize, you, you, you know, you've had a good year. They won a slam as well, but like Dominic team, you don't have to play, they didn't have to play another match after January, and it was a good year. <laughs> um, and then you know the the Kulhoff and Mektich, the, the the scratch partnership for for this year, who are going to split up. Obviously, not happy with <laughs> with just winning the, the, the tour finals or, or, or splitting off. But boy, they, they played some really really good tennis. Not not a team that that blow blow their opponents off the court. Really organised doubles, some you know a lot of reflexes and entertaining stuff. A team that didn't do so well, we believe are staying together, but are going to be remembered for something very different. That's going to go down into the, the, the commentary history books, I would say, involved our colleague, our colleague Barry Cowan. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this has, has heard or seen this clip because Tennis TV actually put it to, to pictures. It was a match involving John Piers and Michael Venus. You said that very slowly <laughs> and carefully. Say it quickly, and, go on. And sometimes <laughs> over and over and over and over and over again. And sometimes we like to come up with team names or players like to come up with team names for doubles. But it, it wasn't it wasn't the team name that we were expecting <laughs> <laughs> that came up in the middle of one of, of Barry's commentaries. Yeah, I'm not sure what you want me to add to that, but yes, if you if you can imagine Piers and Venus and, and a little a little confusion, you'll see it out there. It's worth a look. A bit of fun from our friend Baz account. These slips do and, and happen. Credit to Barry and Claire yeah. for for keeping it together because our Almost. producer had lost it pretty much. Uh, I'm not sure we would have had any success in actually speaking, no. but they managed to get to the end of the set, didn't they? So the, credit, yeah. they, they got it over the line to the end of the set. So I think that is our favourite moment, smiling just thinking about it. Find it on social media. You can go through the Tennis TV account, or I'm sure if someone may have sent it to you already, it was, it was brilliant. And a lot of coaches are now saying that's what we're going to call them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not the, uh, not the intimidating name. That <laughs> and, of course, when, if you're watching it on, on, on the when it's doing the rounds on Twitter or whatever it is, just bear in mind that it was on radio because it does. It's accompanied by pictures at the moment, which sort of fills the gap. But if you can imagine on radio, there's close yeah. your eyes and <laughs> listen to peers blend into Venus. <laughs> I think so. That is, it's definitely going to be a highlight for us from from 2020 in terms of the tennis. I touched on it. It's a highlight the fact that we got tennis up and running and and we got two Grand Slams and the two finals and together with other tournaments and really when you're you're looking back is that is there a is there a moment that stands out or is it just tennis being back i i suppose it's it's sort of the long drawn out surreal realization that you know it might not be back in, in a couple of weeks and and i suppose the empty stadiums we, we've missed that haven't we the the fans and um the the celebration the atmosphere we, we miss it as commentators because we like to hear the yeah. noise and we get the 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 feel of the of the stadium and then and the players for sure miss it because it's you know of of course money and points and rankings are are important but you know experiencing the moments you know i think a keeps a lot of players going some of the older guys you know it's, you, they know that they're not you don't get that in other walks of life you can be a yeah. successful businessman as you like or but you, you're probably never going to have you know, 10,000 people cheering and, and, and feel that nerves and, and adrenaline so yeah phenomenal to get get back to some play um, I suppose if 
One thing I won't, you asked me what, what I remember, one thing I won't forget is well, my wife gave birth during the US Open final, so we started out watching it, didn't see much of the end oh, of it. Oh, wow, was it yes. actually in the final <laughs> yeah. of the US Open? Because we had the iPad there because we didn't know how long it was going to be. <laughs> and she actually said, well, you may as well put it on, it might distract me a little bit. But we didn't concentrate much on the fifth set. Dominic team won. Knew that by the end. Okay, yeah. good. <laughs> <laughs> Miles, it's been a pleasure. I've been Thank imagining you. people listening after we just talked about the doubles trying to say Piers and Venus really quickly <laughs> and the amount of people now chuckling while listening to this podcast. But Miles, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for your company. Thank you. It's been fun. And yeah, thank you to everyone for listening. It's time now on the podcast to listen in on an interview that Chris Bowers, in a socially distanced way, carried out with a former Tour Finals champion. Well, it's great to be with Michel Stich, former champion in 1993 at the ATP World Championship, as it was called at the time, played in the Festhalle in Frankfurt, uh, which I remember, Michael, as something like, a, it was almost like playing tennis with a in a posh dinner party, because it was very sort of, yeah, it was almost like a carnival thing, but with... Uh, the, the very elegant hall and it was well adorned. And do you remember the visual part of the Festhalle? Yeah, obviously it was. For, I think for us tennis players, it was very unusual because normally you have the big stadium set up with uh, either permanent uh, seating or just like temporary seating. And this was more like coming into something like an opera house, you know, a huge opera house, I have to say. But um, it reminded me a little bit when I played after that in the Royal Albert Hall in London. You know, it's, it's a different setting, it's a little bit cozier, less people, but it was, I think, a very special atmosphere also for the players to play in the Festhalle and uh, just make, made it even more special um, for, for us to, to go there and to look forward to that. And you beat Pete Sampras in the final, 7-6-2-6, um, 7-6-6-2. Was that the greatest match you ever played? Well, depends how you would define greatest match. Um, I think it was one of the best matches. I mean, I, I always enjoyed playing Pete because we had a similar way of playing and similar style. Um, I think he didn't really enjoy playing against me, but I did against him, as my record shows. But um, no, it, was, uh, it was the greatest match, if you go by, by success, probably was still the Wimbledon finals. But... I was always looking for playing the perfect tennis match in my career. You know, as a player, you always feel like I want to play the perfect tennis. I think I realized that I did this like two or three times. And I, I feel like that match was one of those matches where I came really close to play the perfect tennis against the best player in the world. And what is the perfect match? Well, the perfect match is when you win, obviously. <laughs> and when you come off, off the court and you feel like, your tactics worked. You've gone through with your tactics that you set yourself up with before the match. When you, when your ball striking is so clean that you can match your opponent and you feel like it's it's a match. Perfect match is not winning six one six one six one. You know, even if you might have played perfectly, but your opponent probably maybe did not. So it is when both players play near to the top and you come out on top of your opponent in that match because you made the right decisions, you played the right shots at the right time, you got lucky, obviously, in between. But uh, it comes down to one point here and one point there that just make the difference, as it was in the match with Pete. And uh, then you come off the court and say, like, well, anything, I could have done anything better. You know, that's just it. I could have not played any point differently in, in the overall, overall view. And uh, then you feel like, well, came close to the perfect match. 
Because some people say that Nadal's victory over Djokovic in the French Open final was as close to perfection as you'll get. You beat Muster, I think, at the French when he was the champion, which must have come pretty close to perfection. Well, that was the second match when I said I played two to three matches, perfect match. That was the second match where I felt like it was always, it's always up and down in those kind of matches. You're always not playing perfect, but then you pick it up again and you, you rely on your strengths and everything. And that was uh, another match, obviously. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, very rarely that happened with me, unfortunately. And do you miss the best of five format? I mean, the third set tiebreak was 9-7. If that had been the deciding one of the whole tournament, it would have been really dramatic. But uh, you, you had to win five. You had to win in three sets. Well, I, I thought about that a lot in the past years, also at the 1,000 events on the ATP Tour, that they're all being just played best of three matches. And I feel it takes away from the matches and from the success. I, I do miss the best of five matches and those special events and those big moments and obviously the Masters is the finals of the whole year and it is after the Grand Slams the most important tournament you can win so yes I do believe that it should be at least in the finals best of five. Well around the time that you beat Sampras in Frankfurt when Sampras was without question the world number one he said when everyone plays their best tennis Stich is the best how do you react to that? Well, it's a very nice compliment. Uh, unfortunately, I did not do that often enough. <laughs> Otherwise, I would have been number one and won more Grand Slams. But um, with me, it's like I always took a lot of emotions to the court. So if I felt well and I felt happy, I felt happy on the court and everything was very smooth. If I had an unraveling situation before a match or during a week of a tournament, I took that with me onto the court and just affected my game a big way, where a lot of other players were able to just block that out and just walk on court and really just play their matches. So, um, yeah, it's very nice uh, to hear that from uh, the best player in the world and one of the all-time greats. But um, I would have loved to convert a little bit more on that, unfortunately. And you went into that final having played two long tie breaks in your semi-final against Goran Ivanisevic. I think one of them was 12-10. And Pete had won in less than an hour the day before against Andre Medvedev, dropped three games. So... Did that actually help you going into that final because he was such an overwhelming favourite? Well, I don't think that he was such an overwhelming favourite because everyone knew that he didn't really enjoy playing me. Um, but um, obviously I played in Germany in front of the home crowd, which was a big advantage. Uh, it was my second time at the, at the World Championships and the first time was a disaster in 91, you have to say. So I wanted to make that up and I had kind of a bucket list with what I wanted to achieve and I really wanted to win this tournament in Frankfurt. And uh, I, you know, having long matches or having intense matches is nothing that really brings the better out of you in the next match or is exhausting. I think the adrenaline is so high and you're so pumped and you're so focused of reaching your goal that it doesn't really make a difference if you win one and one or if you win six and six. Um, it's just about focusing on what you want to achieve. And uh, there is no physical exhaustion as well. You know, it's, it's like I had, a, I had a strange match against Korea in the round robin matches where Jim was sitting down on the bench and reading a book on change of, change of ends. I mean, that gives you something to think about when you're the opponent. You feel like, what the heck is the guy doing there? But um, Did that throw you? Well, I, I just thought the guy's nuts. You know, I mean, I always had a great relation with Jim. We still have and we have, a, we have a good friendship. And funny enough, I just texted him the other day when he was at the French Open because I, I looked back at, at some of the matches I played and I, I wrote him and said, by the way, do you still have that book? 
And he texted me back and he said, yeah, I still have that book somewhere in a storage. I said, you know what? I would love you to grab that, just sign it for me and send it to me because it's a nice little memorabilia because it never happened before and will probably never happen again that a player reads a book on change events. Do you remember what it was? Uh, he told me I forgot. Uh, Maybe the Moon by Armitstead Mopin. Okay, I will read it, whatever it's about. It at least helped him to lose that match. Well, that's great. I was going to ask you whether you remembered that, because it, in a way, it was one of the colourful moments of that whole week. Well, you, funny enough, um, it's like what people think, like the media always just writes about the great tennis match and stuff like that. But if you look at that situation, it was all over the media worldwide. And it had nothing to do with a tennis stroke or a match result. It was just a player doing something out of the ordinary. It's like players these days throwing a racket, which happens rarely with very few players. But I just remember like when Baghdad is at the Australian Open after a match, like smashed five or six of his tennis rackets after he lost the match. That was on all the tabloids and all the headlines of the newspapers. It was not the result of the match. It was the fact that he smashed five or six tennis rackets. So it just shows it's not about tennis. It's about personality. It's about the people that are playing the sport. It's about stories that are being told and can be told by the media as well. So that got a lot of attention, obviously. Um, and so I was very aware of that. And is that good? I mean, you think of someone like Rafa, who never breaks a racket because it was drummed into him by his uncle that people in Africa want one of his rackets and therefore he shouldn't uh, abuse them. And yet we see that Kyrgios, whose um, antics are often more prominent than his results, uh, he gets massive publicity. Well, I think you always need both sides of the story. You know, like in our time, we had like Stefan Epic was a very quiet and calm person. And then you had a Boris who was very emotional, myself. Uh, you had Andre who played very energetic and on the court with all the things that he had with long hair and jeans and stuff. I think you need to have those opposites to be able to create stories. And what I find these days is that the players should give more from themselves, from their personality. You need to know basics. What's their favorite food? Do they have a dog? You know, what, what's their favorite soccer club? And those rivalries make the sport even more interesting because people look forward to Kyrgios as playing Nadal. You know, it's not about the better, better player should win. It's about um, what's going to happen. You know, is he going to serve on the hand? You know, is he going to upset Nadal? How is Nadal going to react? So you realize that the fans are looking so much more than just a great tennis match. Are the top players a little bit too nice to each other? I mean, there's tremendous respect among Federer, Nadal, Djokovic. Do you sometimes wish there was a little bit of needle the way there was between, say, Becker and Cash or, I don't know, thinking of other players of your era? Well, you look at Lennon, McEnroe, uh, you know, Connors was not friends with anyone, I guess, at the time, basically. Um, one thing, you know, you still respect your opponent for what he's done and what he's doing on a tennis court. That's not the question. I think they all do. But you don't have to like everyone. And if you're playing in against Slim Final, there was a time when Roger was so dominant on the two and the players walked off court and said, well, it was such a great pleasure to play against Roger and more or less to lose against Roger Federer. You know, it's such an honor to have played him. It's like I, I was sat at home. I said, like, if I would be a coach, I, I would get my player and say, like, how can you say that? I mean, you go out there because you want to win. And if you don't win, you're upset. You can accept the fact that you lost against a better player, but the next time you go out, it has to be, well, I'm going to do better and I'm going to win. If it takes a little bit of mental gaming on court, which is still inside the rules and everything, fair enough. You know, and then Boris was a guy who was very good at that. You know, he used the mental part of the game 
more than others did to upset, throw off his player. Connors did that in a big way. Johnny Mack did that. But still, there was always respect for the achievements for your opponent. And I think that's something that I'm missing. It's a little bit of controversy, a little bit of, of a fight, not just with a tennis racket and a tennis ball, but just to get in the other guy's head as well a little bit. Just going back to the uh, that great year you had, you finished... 1993 by not only winning the ATP World Championship, you won the Davis Cup shortly afterwards. You finished the year with seven titles on all four surfaces. Uh, I say four because we've a rather lost carpet these days or the, the, the matted hard court. But was actually Hamburg a bigger deal for you, one of the tournaments you won in the early part of the year, uh, than winning in Frankfurt or Davis Cup? Because you are very attached to your home city, aren't you? Yeah, well, emotionally, it was even bigger than winning Wimbledon, I have to say, because emotionally, this was the childhood dream. I went to Hamburg as a six, seven-year-old for the first time, climbing fences, getting through holes, uh, trying to get to the center court. We didn't have a ticket to. I watched players like uh, Jose Geras, Manuel Orantes, Peter McNamara, who I really loved at the time, Harold Solomon inventing the moon ball in Hamburg. Um, so I saw a lot of great players from that generation, and I just uh, created yeah, a dream of being part of this event. And I wanted to play. The first goal was to play the qualies one day. And then once I did that, I played my first main draw, which I lost against Jonas B. Svensson at the time. I got beaten very badly on court number one. And when I lost in 92, the finals against Stefan Edberg on a Monday's final, actually, um, I was very sad because I saw my childhood dream slip away. And then when I had a chance in 93, I, I really wanted it very badly. And uh, I didn't play the best tennis match against Chesterfield, I have to say. I was very upset with my performance, but at the end, I didn't care about it because I came out winning it. And uh, so that was really something I've, well, I've waited 20 years for, basically, to hold that trophy and to be able to call myself a winner at the Rotenbaum. So, uh, yeah, emotionally, I think the most important win in my career. And then in 1994, you missed out on qualifying for the ATP World Championship by one place. So you were the first reserve what do you do as the alternate? Well, you hang around, you watch matches where you feel like I should have won that. <laughs> I would have done better than that. You practice and you're being a hitting partner for the other guys that want to hit maybe. And you just hope. So uh, it's, it's, it's kind of frustrating, actually. You said that if you had actually tapped into your best more often, you might have won more Grand Slam titles. I mean, you won the Wimbledon singles title, Wimbledon doubles title, Davis Cup, Olympic gold medal, and every meaningful tournament on German soil. And yet there are some people who still say that you underachieved. Do you see that as a compliment or do you think they're being a bit harsh on you? Well, I think it's not meant as a compliment, so I can't see it as a compliment. And I think that the people are on the one hand right, um, I should have, with the potential I had and with the possibilities I had, I should have won more Grand Slams. But I was not willing to sacrifice everything just for the sake of tennis in winning titles. And uh, if I look back now, the one thing that I really regret is not winning the French in 1996. And for the sake of winning the French in Wimbledon, I think would have made a good match and shown that I was a good player on all surfaces. And because I, I lost, I lost it. I think not Kafelnikov won it. I really lost the match because I, I didn't believe enough in, in being able to win it at the time. Um, but looking back, as I said, um, I am the person that I am right now because I lived and played my career as I did. 
and I'm very happy with the person I am right now. And uh, if I would have focused everything just on tennis and blocked out everything else as other players did, I might be a different person. And uh, I'm not sure if I would be happy with that. So um, I'm happy with it. Which brings me to something else. I mean, you came late to tennis. You finished your schooling. You didn't properly go on the tour until you were about 19. Now, given the fact that players develop later these days, would you actually recommend youngsters to finish their teenage school years before going on the tour in order to be the person that they are meant to be rather than get immersed in the tour too young? Well, there's not just one way. Obviously, there are both ways. And some players are ready from the personality to go on tour with 16, as we have seen in the past at my time, with the, with Boris and the Germans, Steve, Yale and Kuhn, and they all left school with the age of 16, they wanted to become professionals, like Agassi and all those guys did. Rafa came on very early, obviously, and was very successful in very early years. I think it always depends on how you as a person are developing, developing your personality. And there's no rule you can put onto that and saying this is what you do to become a good professional at a young age. If I imagine I should have traveled the world with 16, I would have not been able to do that. I, I, for me, that would have been way too early. I, I needed the security of my home, of my family, of the surroundings that I had to become more mature and more grown as a person and to be also ready to handle the situation being on tour because it's a tough job, you know, when you're traveling like you know, I travel 45 weeks a year and you have to be able to do that, be on your own a lot, you know, be with people you don't really want to be with, create your own surrounding. And uh, now, obviously, because the physical part becomes so much more important, it shows also that the players are playing much longer when they're at, 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 a, at a later age, obviously, because physically they are stronger than we were at our time. Um, but I think everyone has to really pick out themselves. I, I truly believe if you are a good tennis player, and you have the talent, age is, no, is of no importance. If you become good with 20 or with 24, it doesn't make any difference as long as you reach your full potential. And I believe sometimes the young players are starting too early and they're burned out when they're 22, 23, and then they're just taking away something from them. And that's not good because it's, a, it's not a waste, but it's, you lose a lot of talent out there because maybe they're going out too early. So if the person you are now was coaching the person you were in your late teens would you have recommended you do anything different no I think the success is right and I've learned I have to say my first coach was Mark Lewis from New Zealand brother of Chris Lewis who was the Wimbledon finalist who was an okay player Mark but he basically taught me what it meant to be a tennis professional and that's something that a young kid with 16, 17 doesn't have an idea what it really means to be a professional. You feel like I travel the world, I go to tournaments, and that's what I do. But it's so much more to that. And Mark Lewis told me that I had not to practice six hours a day uh, with my way of playing tennis and being as a person. For me, it was important to practice maybe four hours a day, additional strengthening and, and running stuff. But just to do that on a very, very high quality. And I think... That's something that every player has to learn for himself. What is the right setup for me to create the best performance and to get the best out of me? And, and as a coach, it's very important to sense that, to feel, to understand the person behind the player to give the right advice. And uh, Mark Lewis was a great influence for my career. And I, I think I learned the basics really from him, what it meant to be a professional, to be then that successful. Without him, I think I probably would have not managed to do that.
And so is there anything that you would say to the young uh, Michael Stich now about, you know, at any stage of your playing career that perhaps you would like to have maybe mastered earlier or done differently? Well, I think if I would be a coach and tell myself now, maybe at the at the important matches or the important tournaments, maybe to have that focus a little bit more just on tennis, not on every week, on every tournament, but just on that big moments to really be able to create another 10% of the possibilities and the options that I had to be able to win more Grand Slam tournaments. Um, but then again, when, you know, when I played the best tennis and, and I was on fire, so to say, uh, I think I would have loved to watch me play tennis as a coach. I would have been frustrated time to time as well, but uh, I would have enjoyed those rare moments, let's put it this way. If you had been at your peak 10 years earlier, I think you would have been hailed as the, certainly for a time, as the greatest player that Germany had ever produced. But you had the either good fortune or misfortune to play at the same time as Boris Becker and Steffi Graf. And in many ways, you were the third person in that. Do you think that you were somewhat underappreciated in your home country because of having to share the limelight with them? Um, no, not unappreciated. I mean, I learned when I started playing in Germany, I really, really didn't enjoy playing in Germany because I always felt there was a lot of expectation and you were not able to really please the crowd's expectation. Um, I learned at some stage when it started basically in 91 at the Masters when I played against Boris and I walked in the arena and I felt like eight and a half thousand were against me and only one and a half thousand were for me. And uh, when I reflected on that, I, I learned to understand that there were not eight and a half thousand against me. There were eight and a half thousand for Boris, which is a completely different thing. And once I learned that, that it's not against someone, but people are cheering for you. And sometimes they do things, they, they shout in like, you know, come on, try harder or give it a better try or something like that. I would get very upset in younger ages. When I got older, I learned that it was not to hurt me. It was about... They were so disappointed that I did not really reach my full potential. They wanted me to win. So they did say this to encourage me to be a better player and to maybe win. So once I did this, I really enjoyed playing in Germany. And, and that is something that um, came along with me being the, the third, so to say, as you said, after Boris and Steffi was no problem in general at all, because I think we all benefited from each other, especially Boris and myself, because we had this rivalry and we always wanted to be better than the others. So, I think that rivalry made us better tennis players in general because we wanted to, we had a goal, you know, to be better than the countryman in a way. So I think at the end, it really helped, uh, helped me and I think it helped Boris as well. I, I'm sure that's the case. I just remember at the end of 93, I mean, you'd played Davis Cup all year. You'd won the, uh, the Davis Cup for Germany pretty much single-handed because you played singles and doubles all year. Boris had finished outside the top 10. And yet when you played each other, I think, in Stuttgart in 94, the crowd was more for him than for you, which always struck me as desperately unfair to you. And I wonder if you felt that in any way. No, because he was the first. I mean, I always compare that with Formula One. You know, you have Michael Schumacher who won seven or eight world championships and Federer won four. He's a great driver and he's very, very successful. But it will always be Michael Schumacher. And it will be Michael Schumacher in 20, 30, 40 years coming. And that was the same with Boris and Steffi. I mean, they were the first. They have done things that no one has ever done before. And so they deserved and also got more emotional feedback and 
and involvement from the people because they've achieved things in such a young age that people will never forget. And for that reason, that was okay with me because I understood that I, you know, I, I was not less liked, I was respected, but there was someone before me who did the same thing that I did in a way. So, um, and, and that's okay, you have to accept it and uh, it should not get you to the point that you feel like I can't perform at a high level because that affects me as a, as a person which it didn't. Sometimes, obviously, I was not happy with it, no doubt about it, and I felt I could have received more respect for my uh, achievements and for my results. But looking back now, I think uh, the public did that, and uh, that was fine. You got tremendous international respect in 2018 when you were inducted into the International Tennis Hall of Fame. Now, Hall of Fame, Halls of Fame are very much an American uh, invention, uh, which the rest of the world is sort of catching on to. How much did that mean to you to be recognized as one of the greats of tennis through that particular honor? Uh, it meant a lot and it means a lot to me. I mean, uh, you know, when you're a young player, you never feel like no matter what kind of success you have, that you might get it into the Hall of Fame, which is the ultimate shrine of the tennis world, so to say. And I know that my ex-manager, unfortunately, Ken Myerson, who, who died at a much too young age, um, for him, it was so incredibly important. He wanted me so badly as an American to be in the Hall of Fame. And so he tried to pull the strings and get me in and did this and talk to people and whatever. And I was, I was nominated, I think, twice before because I, before I got in and uh, I didn't make it. And uh, so in that year was my last chance, basically, because they changed the rules at the International Tennis Hall of Fame. I, you know, I wanted it very badly. I didn't expect it to happen. And so I was so much happier as well that I was recognized as someone who was a good tennis player, but also after the world, after the time of my active career, that people reflect on what did you do afterwards? How did you manage your life? What kind of achievements with my foundation and being tournament director in Hamburg? So it was good at a later age to receive that because it just takes the whole picture of a person in and that just made me even happier. You mentioned your foundation there. I mean, your foundation focuses mainly on AIDS and HIV. It's sort of one of the forgotten or um, underappreciated uh, issues that was very big in the 80s and 90s, but doesn't get talked about much now. Is that part of the motivation for you? I think I was one of the first guys in the tennis to, as an active player, who really set up his own foundation and started giving back to society. And I, I think I was a role model for, for a lot of players to come because a lot of players now have this and have created their own foundation. So, um, and HIV was a subject, as you said, it was not spoken about a lot at the time, especially for kids, because I, my foundation is for HIV-infected children. And uh, that was the motivation to, to learn about the subject, about the issue myself, but also to help kids that are really on the outside of our society and are not socially recognized at all. And uh, that, that whole combination of things just wanted me to, to do that and to, to take that subject. And do you get involved in some of the actual children that your uh, foundation helps so that you actually get to see face-to-face um, the, -face the, the, um, the benefits that your foundation is actually bringing about? Well, I did in the beginning. I, in the beginning of the foundation work, I really got, got together with the kids and, and, and saw them at some tennis tournaments when they invited them and stuff like that. But when you then uh, three months later get a letter where you get the information that the kid had died, 
um, it just got very close to me. And so I stepped away from that because I, I realized it was tough for me to handle the fact that you get emotionally involved and you want to help. And, and the result is that the kid still dies, obviously. And that, that affected me. And uh, that's something I would have taken with me on a tennis court as well. It made me sad. But obviously, uh, medication and, and the, the medicine has developed and improved so much that obviously kids now can have a much longer, better life and they can create their own families, have children and all that stuff. So uh, it has changed a lot over the course of 26 years that I'm doing it now. And uh, still we have projects where we get involved. Also the people that are working with me, where you see the kids and we have a group from Berlin, um, from, the, uh, from the clinic there that we've started working with like 15, 16 years ago and nearly 20 years ago. They we're still in contact with. They're all like now in their mid-20s. They become cooks. One wanted to become a football, soccer professional. The others do some kind of university. And so it's great to see that you help them to, to develop their life and just to move on. And that's, that's a great, great output to get. And you were um, in charge of the Hamburg tournament for 10 years um, until recently. That gives you obviously a connection with today's tennis world. How important is it that we actually pay attention to the history of tennis, that young players know what has gone before them in the development of the sport? Well, I like history and I, I like looking back, but it's something I think you need to understand the history of our sport to also understand where we're at and where we came from. I had an, I had an experience once with Bob Hewitt, uh, who I met at, at the Wimbledon, at Froome McMillan, obviously, who worked for a couple of TV stations at Wimbledon as well. And we one day had a beer and we sat together and we spoke about prize money. When I remember I made like, I think $500,000 when I won Wimbledon, which was a ton of money at the time. I think now the winner makes 3 million or something like that. Um, and Bob, uh, Froome McMillan told me, well, you know what we received in the mid-60s when we won the doubles at Wimbledon? And I said, no. He said, well, we received about 15 pounds and a voucher for a meal. And I think just to understand that, to see where the sport is coming from and where we're at right now in the economy makes you understand we should not take things for granted. Having a pandemic right now makes you understand, well, there's so much, there's so much more to the world than just the small-minded tennis world of there's tons of money and we'll just get it. Well, we need the players as tournaments to perform and to entertain, but the players need the tournament to have a job. And without tournaments, they wouldn't be able to, to do their job. So it just shows how much that is connected. And it's not all about money. I wish for the players to make as much money as they can and to generate as much profit as they can make. There's no doubt about it. But there needs to be a good balance of those two parties. And I think that needs to be worked on a little bit more. It needs to create a little bit more understanding. And the history plays a big part on that. If I could just lighten the tone a bit, I know one of the problems you had in the early part of your career was that the English-speaking world struggled with your surname. They couldn't say Stich. They kept asking you how to pronounce it. Uh, did, did the English-speaking world ever master this? Or do you think that, did you give it up as a lost cause? Well, you're a good example for how they mastered it. You are perfectly in pronouncing my name, but the rest of the world didn't. It was either stick with a CK more or less at the end, or was stitch with an extra T before the CH. And I just uh, accepted it. It was okay. It was uh, funny enough that they, and I had sometimes the discussion with chair Price when they announced me, I said, no, 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 this is not right. My name is Michael Stich. And they tried so hard. 
and even the the Europeans sometimes struggle to say that, but uh, it was a uh, yeah, it just created something special actually. Well, there you go. The irony is that the the ch sound does exist in English. It exists in words like human, but people don't think of it as that. And if they actually look at the word human, then they can actually they can say stich and the i sound comes right. I explained that to one or two people and they got it. Well, we should go around and do it now after work. Well, you're certainly part of uh, tennis history. I should just ask you, we've got the last of the 12 ATP finals in London. How do you think London has handled this event following on from, well, a few years where it was in different places, 10 years in Germany before that and 12 years in Madison Square Garden before that? How do you think London has handled it and what sort of a send-off do you think it will have? Well, I think London did a great job. And I think the ATP combined with London did a great job in setting up the finals there in that arena. And I think it has overdone the expectations that also the ATP and the promoters had, especially from the first year. Obviously, Andy Murray helped. Crowd really loved the event. So I think it will be sad to see it go from London and go to different places. Obviously, I think it's going to Turin. And, uh, and uh, they will have a big chance, but they will have to um, match what has been done in, in England and uh, in, in London. And so I hope for, for the new promoters and the new venue that they will not try to match, but they create their own, own visual and their own um, atmosphere and their own tournament and not just look back, just really look ahead and just do something special for themselves. I think it's great it stays in Europe because we have most of the top guys are European and most of the tournaments are being played in Europe. So I think that's a great signal also to the European tennis market. Um, and uh, we'll look forward to see how it's going to happen. And finally, when people mention the name Michael Stich, however they pronounce it, what do you like them to remember most about your playing career? Never thought about it, but... Uh... Well, maybe what you said about Pete Sampras. If I would have played, everyone would have played their best tennis, I would have been the best. Michael Stich, thank you very much indeed for chatting with us on ATP Tennis Radio. Thanks a lot. Michael Stich in conversation with Chris Bowers. Now, the season might be over with live commentary returning around the Australian Open, but the podcast continues. So make sure you subscribe to get your weekly dose of ATP Tennis Radio with special features, interviews and much more to look forward to. Stay safe and well, and we look forward to your company again soon. 